And so as we come together today, we're going to pick up our time and our study from Matthew 18 as we begin reading at verse 15 through verse 20. And we will just begin to begin to get into this text this morning. So now hear the word of God, Matthew 18, verses 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our gracious Father, as we come to this very important text, we ask that you would give us your spirit to rightly divide the word of truth, to rightly hear the word of truth, and to rightly apply the word of truth. We enter into your school of discipleship under Christ, who is our head, who disciples us, who teaches us, who disciplines us as dear children, and how thankful we are for the good hand of our Lord in continuing that good work that He has begun and will complete it. We're thankful for this Word, and we understand from Your Word that it is by it that we are sanctified and washed and cleansed in the washing of the water by the Word that Christ may present unto Himself a beautiful bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. And so today we ask that You would wash us in the Word, for Thy Word is truth. And give us ears to hear the truth, and may the truth set us free. And today may we stand in that liberty wherewith Christ has set us free, and rejoice in Thy great salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's important to recognize that the text that we're now entering, which is one of the most common texts in the passage or the chapter, but also probably one of the more common texts in the entire Gospel of Matthew to, to most of us. We're familiar with this passage. We often think about it or quote it or contemplate its teaching, but the matter comes to us right after and in the context of what has preceded it, all in continuing to answer the question that disciples began in verse 1, as they were asking, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And as he begins to explain to them what greatness is all about, he defines it in terms of not the way that we have come into this world thinking about it, but quite the opposite. And so he takes up a child in the first 14 verses, then uses that child to illustrate to us humility. And as we begin to continue on in the train of thought, the second portion, uh, to be great, 
in Christ's kingdom, greatness is also characterized by loving confrontation. And then lastly, in the last portion of this chapter, which we'll get to, is deeply forgiving spirit. So the matter comes to us directly after the passage that exhorts us to humbly relate to each other as children. The entire chapter is teaching us how to genuinely and biblically love one another. Love is not just merely something undefined and left to a feeling or a subjective emotion, but really there is a biblical love that God has revealed to us and we're right in the heart of what it means to be great in this love. So to be a great Christian, we are to humbly relate to each other as, as little children. And that would include the love and the kindness in receiving one another as a child. And as we do, we receive Christ. And the child is used here as just a part of that society as one who was in some sense the least of the covenant people. And yet here's Jesus using that, particularly in the way the disciples had, had thought about children and how they at one time and once again keep them or try to keep them from the Lord. And so we are to receive one another. But humility is also evident in the self-awareness so that we do not hinder one another in one's pursuit of Christ or holiness. And then the last part of that passage that just precedes this is there's a humility that does not despise one another. To think little upon or to think down upon. Do not despise. Verse 10 would say, one of the little ones. The next thing in this passage is where we now will spend some time for the next several weeks in how to lovingly confront one another. And this is a very important part of being a Christian and living out our faith. We cannot live out our faith in isolation. Community life is not an optional practice, but it's the way of living out the Christian faith. It is how God has designed us to live. We live in an intensely relational way in the household of God. So much so that Christians come into a new family. And we treat each other and even call each other brothers and sisters. And this is called the household of faith. And so we are intensely relational. But to be in covenant with God means that we are in covenant with one another. And we have to live that covenant relationship out. And as we live in close community with one another as brothers and sisters, as a close family, we're going to gain more knowledge of each other. We're going to know about each other a lot more. And that means that we're going to become much more aware of our faults and of our character flaws. And some of those faults are very, very small and insignificant. And those kinds of things need to be just dismissed immediately. 
The part of learning to live in a family is to overlook some things that we may otherwise be inclined to take offense. And so we are to love, and the love covers a multitude of transgressions. But there are times when confrontation with one another is necessary. And to be faithful, and to be a faithful disciple of Christ, we will need to practice this difficult task of meekly confronting a brother in love. To be in the school of Christ's discipleship, we need to be open to be confronted, and we need to be quick to repent. The word discipleship and discipline come from the same root word. And both of them have to do with this idea of child training, of this disciplining up of children to maturity. And this is one of the ways that God has arranged in our relationship one with another in His family. And there are common mistakes that I see from this passage and part of the journey of us going through this passage over subsequent weeks will be for me to be drawing out of the reservoir of archives of areas where I have seen this mishandled so that we can learn from those mistakes and that we can be more faithful and biblical. When it comes to this passage, I've seen several mistakes. Number one, I've seen this practice completely neglected. With the idea of live and let live. I've seen this practice ignored. Which is a second way I've seen a mistake that comes into Matthew 18. It's ignored because people don't like confrontation. But the problem is, people will air their complaints if they don't go to the offender, and they will inevitably gossip about them. And now the gossiper has added to the sin, and in many cases has become more liable, and more culpable for the guilt than the original offense in the first place. Third, I've also seen this practice of Matthew 18 executed very wrongly in how people go about it, that it causes a great deal of harm and can damage relationships rather than reconcile them. And so it is not to ignore the passage and not to discourage people from practicing this, but it's also that which we don't become so zealous that we go off on the other side. It's right up here on that knife edge. We need to know how to live out the spirit and the letter of this passage. I've seen people go about this whole process either in the wrong manner or with the wrong motive or in the wrong spirit. And it can cause great damage in the body of Christ. So we need to spend some time here. We need not rush through it. And so this morning is going to be really more of an introductory time together as we think through some of the details 
of the next several verses. Someone's crop pot is going off. If we need to turn it on, we don't want to eat cold food. Feel free to. You know, confrontation's not an easy thing. None of us like confrontation. It's very unpleasant, it's difficult, but it sometimes is necessary and Christ requires it of us. It's not an option. I don't know of anybody who likes confrontation unless they are a contentious person. And I have run into those in my 25 years of ministry as well. But they are few and they are far between. But we cannot let the unpleasantness of a matter such as confronting a brother in the right way lead us to disobedience in the very thing that God expects of us and the means to sanctify the body of Christ and to harness in and to rein in sin rather than keeping it to, to be aggravated and fostered and to grow like a cancer within the body. Frankly, this is not optional in Christian love. If you love your brother, you're going to have to practice this. If you do not practice this, you do not love your brother. And we're going to hopefully frame all that in the right context here shortly. But we've got to be about this. And we've got to be about it in the right way, in the right manner, with the right motives and the right reasons. So let's learn some of the biblical why do we do this and how do we do this and when should we do this and over what matter should we do this and, and with whom. It's all, the, all those things that a journalist should all take down and note for us. The passage is the first instruction in the New Testament we have with confronting a brother with sin. And if you'll note with me, it begins with an informal, private appeal. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And can someone tell me the next word? Alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now that's how it begins. It's, it's informal. There's nothing official going on here. It's a private conversation. And oftentimes this is where misunderstandings are cleared up. Oftentimes there's a lot of talking past each other, which are now established on good footing. And sometimes what was intended or thought to be as a sin is really not a sin at all. And so this is where it gets contained. So it begins in a, in a private conversation. And then it ends in a very public, formal situation that encompasses the whole church. Now if this is done well and consistently, it rarely goes to that formal and final stage. If it is done well, and if it is done consistently, it rarely does that, or has called for that. And this is why God has divinely commissioned this method of discipline 
in a way to keep us faithful to His covenant. In fact, in Hebrews 10, it says, And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much as you see the day approaching. Now, many folks refer to this entire passage, and they consider it as the steps of church discipline. And while it is true that this passage does instruct us much in the process of church discipline, we should know that it begins with this informal and private conversation between two Christians. And so perhaps we can call that first portion of this passage relational discipline or covenantal discipline. Because the matter may never end up in church Discipline. Make sense? In fact, there's a, there's a step that Jay Adams would even put before that, and he would call it uh, self-discipline. And then we get into an informal, private uh, conversation that I'm calling a relational discipline. So let us consider the informal aspects of this covenant discipline, this relational discipline. So I've entitled the message, Relating to One Another in Meek Confrontation. In Matthew 18, 15, when you go to a brother regarding a sin issue, don't think about it as starting the process of church discipline. You're coming at it from the wrong angle and from the wrong perspective and you'll probably go about it in the wrong motive and for the wrong reasons. But rather, you're genuinely doing this to help a brother address a sin, to help him get back on a healthy path and back on the narrow and straight way. But then what justifies our reason for going to a brother to confront him? Some would say, well, that sounds arrogant or judgmental or intruding into somebody else's business in an unwarranted way. No, that's not for us. It sounds like I'm censoring somebody. Well, let me at least draw out three passages of Scripture, just very brief. I'm going to note them that actually expects us to judge one another in the way that Matthew 18 is telling us. We can't get around it. John 7.23 says that we are to judge and we are to make righteous judgments. We do have to look at this in terms of the Matthew passage, judge not lest you be judged, but we, we, there is a sense that we will have to go through this process and make some righteous judgments for the sake of God's name and discipline. There's a second passage in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul rebukes the church in 1 Corinthians 11 for not judging themselves on two errors that they were making when they came together on the Lord's Day. And the first one was for women not covering their heads when they came to worship. And he says, verse 13, Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
And the second one was further in the passage as it comes around the Lord's table. When for the abusing of the Lord's table and the disunity that they were going on in the body when they came to the Lord's table, Paul says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged, meaning by God. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul was exhorting the church to judge matters between brothers at odds with one another so they don't have to go before heathens in the court of law and air out all their dirty laundry before the unbelievers in a civil court. The Bible calls on us to live in a covenantal, relational way. We have to judge matters pertaining to one another at some level. God expects us to do so. So then what justifies us going to another brother? And for your approach to be legitimate in Matthew 18, you need to consider two things. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time considering two things which would legitimize and justify your reason and help you to understand when I should go or when I should not go to a brother. And number one has to do with the nature of what you think the brother has done. And number two has to do with the reasons you want to do anything about it. Number one has to do with the nature of what you think he's done. And number two, why do you think you need to do anything about it? So let's think about number one. The nature of what you think your brother has done to legitimize going to him to confront him, must be sin. It must be an issue of sin. It is not as some people would say and use the word offense that the personal preference of some kind has rubbed me wrong, therefore I'm going to go to my brother. No, that's not legitimate. It's not because you were offended by the way a person laughs or the way he combs his hair. Just kind of referencing back to last Lord's Day's message. That personally offends you. That's not legitimate. Go to your brother to confront him. Personal little petty grievances where your emotions got bent out of shape. We're not talking about those things which will actually, in our fallen world, have no end to them. Because love covers a multitude of transgressions. So I want to look at five passages, and if you want to, you can flip there. I'm going to reference them, but you can write them down if you want to consider this for later, because it could be helpful, to show you some examples of the kinds of sins that call for confrontation in this way. And the first passage I'm going to reference is right from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a passage that you quote every Lord's Day when we come to the table, and it has an implication on the table itself. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was a sexual sin of immorality that was being um, allowed in the church by one of the church members, or maybe two even, it appears to be one. And yet even that sexual immorality, Paul is going to expand to other kinds of sins. It has a ripple effect and it's going to have a, an effect upon the whole body. And he begins to tell them that you're boasting on what they were doing 
while they were tolerating that sin, is not good at all. Don't you know that a literal leaven will leaven the whole lump? And that's the major consideration here. A second passage we find in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul, in writing this little epistle to the church at Philippi, calls out by name two women. And he calls them out to the extent that when the church is reading this letter, they're going to read this letter with these two ladies' names mentioned in it, and we now even have recorded in our time these two ladies' names. He publicly called them out. Because these two women became a public problem. And when you have that kind of situation, it has to be dealt with publicly in order to clean it all up. What was the nature of the problem? In verse 2 of Philippians 4, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now the problem that was going on with two individual ladies in the church was they were living in disharmony with each other. But it wasn't a private matter. To the extent that even Paul had heard about it, and all of the church knew about it, and this kind of problem, if it goes on and persists, it needs to be addressed publicly because the whole public nature of it and what that kind of problem becomes. So that's a second kind of sin problem that legitimizes us to go to our brother. A third passage I'm pulling from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, which says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And what he is speaking about in the kind of sin that is going on there is someone who walks disorderly, and someone who walks disorderly causes a problem within the church that is broader than even his particular individual sin. He lives in an undisciplined way, and someone who will not keep their rank within the structure of the covenant body of Christ. Particularly, the application that Paul's addressing here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 has to do with work. And there were some in the church of Thessalonica who would not work. And when they did not work, Paul, this is the same passage that says, if you don't work, neither should you eat. But someone that was not working and pulling his load and being a consumer is that which causes a disruption in the body of Christ and this kind of undisciplined living is that which would not hold a job, would not earn their daily bread, would depend upon others when he did not need to do that. And that kind of undisciplined defense warrants the church's action. And that's another kind of sin that legitimizes the going to a brother to confront him. Not only legitimizes it, 
God expects it of us. A fourth passage I'm pulling from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, which says this, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Another kind of offense that warrants the church's official action, and which would then warrant our informal engagement earlier on, is this kind of sin where there is this cancer within the body around a particular teaching that has implications and applications that is causing disruption in the body of Christ, even overthrowing the faith of some, becoming a stumbling block to others, hindering people's pursuit of Christ in holiness. It disturbs and it shakes the faith of some. And that's exactly what we were told back in the previous portion of the passage in the same Matthew 18, that we are not to be a hindrance, an obstacle over which one must get to pursue Christ. So that's another kind of sin that warrants us, even early on, confronting our brother that would eventually have official church sanction in formal discipline if it was not repented of and unchecked. And then a fifth, and probably my last one that I'll use as an example, is from Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. The Scripture says, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. They are unprofitable, and they are useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And here, the kind of sin that Paul is calling out is one of a particular dispute of controversies that creates disputes within the church and divisions and schisms in the body. He's a factious man, and Paul says you have to reject him if he does not heed after the first warning. One who causes schism, one who sows discord within the body. So all of these could be categorized in one of two categories. And I think what justifies our action in going to confront a brother over a sin would have to be qualified by one of these two categories. Either it's sinful behavior or it is sinful beliefs. Every one of you who are members here took a a vow. And the last vow that you take is that you will agree to submit in the Lord to the government of His church, and in case you're found delinquent in doctrine or practice, that you will heed its discipline. And those are the two categories. What you believe, and how you live. And how you believe is just as disciplinable 
as how you live. And often, and actually those two are related, what you truly believe will have its fruit in the way you live, and how you live actually does reveal your values of what you truly give yourself to, what you trust, what you believe. Now that's going to help us to know what kinds of sins will justify our action in going to our brother or our sister in Christ in order to confront them in this biblical, covenantal, relational way that God puts it upon us and commands us to do and expects us to do in the church. But what necessitates going forward with this kind of activity that we've been noting is that there is something objective to address. Something that can be talked about. Something that is either visible or we can hear in one's testimony. There are other kinds of sins that we're just going to have to to bear with patiently in the body of Christ and not do this. And some of those things would include things like uh, for attitudes, or someone's motive, or things that you're not going to be able to really establish with a certain evidence. And you're just going to have to suffer long with people, and that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering. Sometimes for a very long time. And you're going to have to, to love them. Now there can be times when it may be appropriate for you to go speak with a brother about an errant and a sinful attitude, but it's not going to be something that if they do not repent of that, according to the way you're thinking about it, then you're just going to have to let it go. You can't, you, we, it doesn't go anywhere further, it doesn't go anywhere else. Does that make sense? Now let's get into the reasons, because I think this is really important. We've looked at what kinds of things will justify and warrant our behavior for addressing someone, but let's look at the reasons. Why are we then to do this? Why are we to go? And this is really important to understand, to have the right motive for why we are to practice this. Why do we need to relate to one another in meek and loving confrontation? And I want to give us three reasons why we do this. And I'll say this up front. No three of the reasons are for our own sakes. You don't do this for your sake. If you're the one that's offended, that is not why you go. So first of all, the the first reason why we are to go is for the sake of the erring brother, even to the saving of his soul. See, this is so important that it actually has the eternal weight given to it in terms of how we are to exhort one another so that we do not fall back in the faith. That's really a whole message of Hebrews there, and much of the application of it is how we are to receive the discipline of God, even from one another's exhortations. 
God uses the means of personal confrontation to correct erring brothers even to the saving of their souls. That's what it was speaking about in verse 12 when we go and after the wayward sheep that is gone, we bring that sheep back to the fold and back to the faith. This manner of relating to one another is vitally important to our spiritual health and to yours and my spiritual sanctification. I want you to hear this from the last verses of the epistle of James, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Brethren, that's us, brethren. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. May I shamelessly tie this into this afternoon's discussion to say that relational confrontation has salvific implications. Your brother's spiritual welfare is one of the reasons you go after him. Your objective is to win your brother, to bring him back to the fold. Your objective is not to satisfy your pride or to gain your rights or your personal vindication. It is not about that at all. You have to be more concerned with your brother's eternal soul than you do your own pride and personal rights. That's the love that Christ is teaching us to apply in this particular case. Let me give you a live illustration. Someone outside of this congregation brought a charge against one of our members for a broken relationship. This person had no interest in their soul or love for their person. They were driven by pride and vengeance. I knew more about the story and some of the facts than the accuser who was bringing the charge. So I sought to bring the parties together to facilitate a conversation to bring clarity to clear up some of that misunderstanding. But the person was more interested, he was not interested in reconciliation but he demanded repentance and he demanded it on his terms and in his way that would satisfy him. And yet I was very interested in helping the sinning person, a member of our church, repent of their ways in every way that they could think of, in every way that they could acknowledge, and encourage them to go back and seek forgiveness. But I wasn't interested in escalating that matter any further than that, because the whole motive 
and the manner was way off base. They had no desire to be reconciled to that person. And know this, that your shepherd will defend you biblically on those kinds of bases and will protect you from that kind of abuse should it come our way, just like I did for this member. But I'm deeply interested in your repentance, regardless of who is bringing a charge, right? You are to be blameless before God, and you do that, and you will show that you are a child of God, no matter who brings the charge. The one bringing the trouble and mishandling the entire matter was the one bringing the charge, not the supposed offender. That person was more guilty because he was demanding things for his sake, for his pride, not for the soul of the erring brother. His entire basis was off, his entire motive was not right, and he was attempting to satisfy his own pride and even vengeance to satisfy his flesh. He was not about the things of God. The reason we confront out of love is for the sake of the erring brother, for his soul's sake. It is not to get a release from your own personal bitterness. Another illustration. Have you ever experienced a case where you maybe personally have inadvertently, not even knowingly, offended someone? And the offended party harbored a bitterness against you for a very long time, perhaps even years. And then came back to you years later and confronted you about that to get the matter open, out in the open and to deal with it so that he would not feel bitter against you any longer. Has that ever happened to you? Or have you ever heard of a case like that? I would say the person that harbored the bitterness for that long of a period of time is the sinner. To harbor bitterness for that long against your brother who didn't even know that he offended him, who's the sinner here? It should be that the person who harbored the bitterness for the number of years should have come forward to the one who inadvertently offended him, and confessed to him, and says, Brother, I have been shunning you in my spirit. I have been distanced from you for a long period of time because I've had bitterness in my heart, and I want to confess that. Will you forgive me? He's the one that needs to seek the forgiveness, not the other. The point in confronting an erring brother is something about Him, not something about me. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. One of the most loving things you can do for your brother is to confront him about his sin for the sake of his soul and his relationship with God. It's for his sake, not yours.
This is what we commit to when you come into covenant membership here at Heritage. In fact, this is what you commit to biblically to live out the faithful covenant no matter what membership you have and what church you go to. This is what God expects of His disciples. This is part of our baptism vows. This is what we have agreed to in terms of coming to Christ. I want to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus says, then come and follow me and let me show you how to do that. And this is one of those areas that we have to be about. This is consistent with Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That's analogous to what it looks like to live in the body of Christ because Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you love your brother and you care about his soul and you see him erring and sinning against God, that relationship is broken and you need to go to your brother for his sake, not yours. If he fends you and sins against you, that gives you the opportunity and the platform for his sake to go and address that so he would get it right with God. So this is biblical love. There's a second reason that we need to confront an erring brother, and that second reason is equally as important. And that second reason is for the sake of the church. For the good of the church. Not only are you to be concerned about your brother individually, but you are to be concerned about the welfare of the bride of Christ. You are to love the bride as Christ loves the bride. And for her sake, you are to go do this. Remember the words from 1 Corinthians 5. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? You have to get the bad apple out before it spoils the whole lot. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. One from Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine you've learned, and avoid them. For those are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Now confrontation, this loving relational confrontation, is needed to protect the unity of the church and her own spiritual health. Those who cause divisions and sow seeds of discord are harmful to the church. They destroy peace and unity by causing offenses that are contrary to the teaching. That's the doctrine that they have learned. In other words, there is something in the teaching that these people are bringing into the body that is causing a disruption and creating divisions in the body. And God tells us to confront those people For the sake of the church. Sure, we want to maintain for the sake of his soul, but equally at the same time, we want to maintain the reason for doing that is for the sake of the health of the church. It's both and. 
In Revelation 2.14, I think we need to listen to the words of Christ as he's writing the different churches there because he's addressing the church at the church of Pergamos. And he says, but I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and those things which I hate. And then listen to Jesus telling the church, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with my sword in my mouth. Later down, as he speaks to the church, to a different church of Thyatira, he is telling them to repent because they've tolerated Jezebel in their midst. Jesus is telling the entire church that he's addressing here to repent for allowing those false teachers to remain in the church. Repent for your tolerance. You're not loving Jesus and his body enough because you've tolerated that which he abhors. God's people need to love the church and be concerned with her purity and her unity. And the church as a whole is responsible for this. Paul confronted Hymenaeus and Philetus there that I've already mentioned when he says, but shun, as he's telling Timothy, shun the profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like a cancer in the body of Christ. And if we fail to confront one another, we allow the sin in the camp to go unchecked. And that sin will grow like a cancer to the extent that the church will not be a church for much longer. Cancer going unchecked will eventually kill the body. And when peace is disturbed, when divisions persist unchecked, when heresies are allowed and schisms are tolerated, the church will eventually cease being what she is. We must learn to confront one another in a loving biblical way for the sake of the erring sinner for the love of his soul, and equally for the sake of the church and the love for her soul. But third, and most important of it all, we need to do this for Christ and the honor and the testimony of His name. And that's the preeminent reason. When Paul is addressing the two men that he calls out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, see, Paul has called a lot of people by name. It's a public thing. And it has been preserved for these generations down to us today so that we would learn. He says, concerning the faith, some have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That they may learn not to dishonor Christ. That they may not bring shame upon His name. 
And we meekly confront one another for our love for each other, for our souls, but for the love of the church, but preeminently for our love for Christ Himself and for the sake of the honor of His great name that men would not blaspheme Him. We should care that men do not blaspheme Christ. And all three of those reasons are why you are obligated, I am obligated, to meekly confront an erring, erring brother in sin, first privately in a conversation between you and him or her alone. Is what he is doing endangering his own spiritual welfare? Then you are to go. Is what he is doing threatening or endangering the purity or the well-being of the church? Then you are to go. Is he tarnishing the name or the image of Christ? Then you are to go. And if he is doing those things, your love is on the line. Your love is being tested. Your knowledge of one of those three, your love is being tested as to whether you are willing to undergo the discomfort and to give the energy and the time to lovingly face that brother or sister, to biblically follow through with it to completion according to the will of God for you. It's incumbent upon us all. So when we come to Matthew 18 and verse 20, 15 through 20, we're dealing with the matters that characterize greatness in Christians, but the greatness is just obedience to the faith. It must be maintained in the same kind of humility that a child first enters the kingdom. But it also must be maintained in the humility and lovingly confronting a sinning brother. Because that's what it really means to be a disciple a follower of Jesus. The first matter of discipline is the life of the believer and the matter of self-discipline. But the second level is the matter of this relational or covenantal discipline and loving each other and meet confrontation. May God help us so that we would love Christ, love His church, and love the souls of those in the pew next to you. Our gracious Father, we ask that as we continue through this study in subsequent weeks, that you would guide us with a true heart for what this is about. That we may not wave our prideful flags and consider that, that we are to have our rights preserved in some prideful way. But Lord, may our love go out for our brothers and sisters whose souls are in jeopardy and whose ways are wandering, and as a lost sheep, bring them back to the fold. May we do this for the great name of Christ, and for His honor, and for the beauty of His bride. May we have the right motives, abundant in love. May we go in humility and meekness, so that Your name and Your gospel can be seen in the life of Your people. And that the world might know that we are Your disciples, because we love one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.